Did you miss me, girl? Yeah! And I missed you. All of you. Wow. Oh, it's great to be in love. Oh, oh, oh. Welcome to Season 2 of How Would Lubitsch Do It, a podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. As is now tradition, we begin our season with a discussion intended to provide some context. Today, Lucy Marzola and I discuss early Hollywood lighting, the role of cinematographers throughout this era, the consequences of sound, and questions of realism. Next week, we begin our journey through the second half of Ernst Lubitsch's Berlin period. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. Welcome, everyone. We are here today with Lucy Marzola. Uh, Lucy, tell us about yourself. What prompted you to say yes to talking about an off-topic thing on a podcast about a German director who has been dead for 75 years? Well, in my line of work, uh, Ernst Lubitsch is never off-topic. He always kind of comes into everything I do. So I teach at USC School of Cinematic Arts in the Division of Cinema and Media Studies, where I'm the program coordinator, and I teach classes on the history of cinematography and color, essentially, you know, Hollywood up into uh, World War II. And my research is within that area is focused on technology and technicians and engineering and um, how all those things and labor and how all those things affect the products that we see and the industry that is developed um, to this day. Well, thank you so much for making the time to hop on. This is one of my favorite types of episodes, which is where I get to talk to someone immensely more qualified than myself about a subject that I'm very interested in. So yes, film lighting. We can't hold it off any longer. We have to discuss the history of lighting in these films, how Hollywood lighting came to look like the way it was. Let's talk about the be- the very beginnings of Hollywood, because I think to understand German cinematography, even in this period, we have to grapple with what the Americans were doing. So let's say we're, you know, early 20th century. Uh, What's going on in Hollywood? What are the impulses? What traditions are cinematographers and filmmakers drawing upon in those early films, which by definition, they have no precedence? So I think a good place to start with this is uh, with Lubitsch coming to Hollywood. And despite him coming from Germany, which is a a cinema that we associate with really interesting cinematography um, that you would have talked about in in the previous season. He doesn't bring a cinematographer with him. And he explicitly talks about this in the pages of very early pages of American Cinematographer, where he says, um, even in Germany, we know that the Hollywood cinematographers um, are in a class by themselves, in part because of their total control over the set, over lighting, not just camera work, but lighting and staging and all kinds of things. And so he came into Hollywood with this idea of of Hollywood cinematography as superior. And maybe he's also flattering the readers of American mm-hmm. Cinematographer um, when he says that there is a differentiation there. But I think also when we learn about early cinema as professors and such, we're kind of forced into kind of creating these really distinct, there's German Weimar cinema, and this is what it looks like. And there's Hollywood cinema, and this is what it looks like. But there's actually a lot of exchange. And that's what's one of the amazing things about cinema is that it's so international from an early stage, the products move around, everybody in Hollywood is watching Madame de Bury, which of course is called Passion in the US and using those styles. So they know what he's done before, they're able to imitate German style. And also we have American cinematographers like Charles Rocher going to Germany and teaching them and learning from them. So there's this, there's a there's a lot of exchange, which we also see exemplified in filmmakers like Lubitsch coming to Hollywood and eventually many, many filmmakers, both in the silent era and then the mass exodus in the 1930s. So the cinematographers themselves that are working in Hollywood in the 1920s, most of them have been in the industry for a while. Um, so they were in the very early days of filmmaking, which up until about 1915, all they're really concerned about is focus and getting an image. And they're not using artificial lighting. They're mostly using the sun. The studios are mostly built outdoors because they need a massive amount of light 
um, to get a good picture with the kind of primitive cameras that they're working with. And so you have a lot of cinematographers who come from that tradition. Yeah, this is a very key thing, I think, that is missed a lot nowadays, where uh, the, the idea of the dark studio, right? The studio that is cut off from natural daylight, that, that was an innovation of the 1910s, right? That was something where, you know, previously, I mean, you see those photos from like the Millier Studios, right? Which were, you know, these cloths draped above the set with otherwise sunlight coming in. And it might have been a glass, almost a greenhouse, but it might have been outdoors. And that was how those quote unquote studio shots were accomplished in the early days. Yeah, the glass studio was the most common form of studio. So you would be kind of insulated from the weather, but you would still get all the sunlight. And a lot of the early studios in New York are built on the rooftops of high-rise buildings in New York City. And that's where they're um, filming a lot of these early films. And, uh, and that's a big part of why they come to Los Angeles is for sunshine, right? Particularly in the winters of New Jersey and New York, they can't film. So they, they come out to uh, Los Angeles. And at that time, they are installing lights, arc lights in the studios, but they're mostly for storms. So when the, suddenly cloud cover comes mm. in, they have lights to as a sort of backup emergency. Um, they're not using them stylistically. Um, and in part is because in order to create style, what they're really doing is tinting and toning. The film stock at this time, orthochromatic film stock, created a really high contrast image, really black blacks and white whites. And so to create sort of dynamics, they would then dye film stock blue for night or yellow to show that they were indoors with artificial lighting, things like that. Um, and so the idea of using lighting for style is not really something that's happening. And it's really the you know advancement of the industry. It's getting bigger. They're moving to feature filmmaking. And really the star system is really what brings in lighting because stars need to look good. They need to be glamorous. They need figure lighting, which portrait photography had been using for some time. Um, and so when you get Lillian Gish and Mary Pickford, particularly Lillian Gish is starting to, you know, she's still playing these little girl roles. Both of them are kind of playing these little girl roles um, when they're no longer little girls. Um, so they need flattering lighting. And so you have Griffith bringing in a portrait photographer on a film like Broken Blossoms in order to do figure lighting specifically for her close-ups. And you can watch in the film, her close-ups look totally different than the rest of the film. The rest of the film has the same sort of tinted, high contrast, sun blanketed sunlight look. And then her close-ups have this soft lighting because they were done by um, Henrik Sardoff, this um, portrait photographer that was brought in to do those shots. And what sort of techniques on the camera and lighting end were used to achieve that? In the book by Patrick Keating that you recommended, I read before this, which is fantastic, by the way, I'll put a link to wait, Ways to Find it in the show notes. Uh, there's a few different names invoked, right? Like the Cooper Hewitt tubes are uh, an, an invention at some point. You have um, on-lens diffusion. You know, how would, for example, if I'm, if I'm Griffith, which is a terrifying concept to consider, <laughs> or a Griffith cinematographer, um, how would I soften Lillian Gish's features? Yeah. So Chris photographer, Billy Bitzer, he never really like there's a reason why he had to bring in portrait photographers to do this, because a lot of the people in the earliest generation of cinematographers remember these are the guys who they figured out how to get focus um, with these box cameras with no reflex lenses um, like that was what their expertise was. Um, and so you had to bring in these portrait photographers. The, the primary technique is three point lighting. And this is like three point lighting does not exist for the first 20 years of cinema. We think of it, you know, in, if you take a filmmaking class, it's taught as just like this is basic language, right? Of, of uh, key light, fill light, backlight mm -hmm. um, as a classic way to film an actor. It's almost the thing we react against, right? It's, it's the thing that as cinematography teacher, I constantly feel compelled to go, we're learning this, but I don't think in this way. It's old and stuffy, right? That's right. the voice that's in my head from when I was a youth. Yeah, like modern artists, it's like you need to know those paradigms in order to rebel against them, though. Like mm -hmm. So all of those paradigms in, are being built in the 19-teens. So it, mm -hmm. like, if we think of the editing paradigms really being built in that time, the 180-degree rolls, shot, reverse shot, all these things are being created as they're learning how to tell stories stories, particularly with silence. I, it's, and it's an interesting thing. If they had had sound, maybe they wouldn't have developed such an elaborate system for telling stories through images. And it's, so it's an interesting part of that, the history of cinema, that it develops so fully as a visual language before it does as an um, auditory one. And so, yeah, we can really directly connect the, the use of, of lighting in more elaborate ways to the star system and the importance of 
the stars and making them look good and making audiences compelled by them and interested in them. So we see more portrait photographers coming into the industry. So people like Charles Rocher and Carl Struess, where they know more about how to work with light and cameras in a still setting that they bring into Hollywood. So what you see in the early 1920s is a very stationary style that you see, you don't see a lot of camera movement, which is different than what's happening in Germany, where you're starting to see this more unhinged camera, the sort of unfastened camera, as they call it, particularly in like F.W. Murnau's films, you see this more more camera movement that gets brought in in the 1920s as we get these German immigrants and as the Hollywood cinematographers are also watching the German films and people are saying, we want shots like these ones that we see um, in these German films. And we see all this kind of dialogue in American cinematographer about bringing in German angles and German camera movements and all that kind of stuff. And you start to see great shots, like the one that always goes viral from wings of moving through the cafe or the, mm-hmm. um, the all the beautiful ones in Sunrise, which, you know, even though F.W. Murnau is German and he brings his German writer and he brings his German production designer, he uses Carl Struess and, and Charles Rocher, these Hollywood cinematographers who are able to incorporate all of these techniques from the the German industry and combine them with this kind of glamour lighting that's become really indicative of the Hollywood style, the soft style. So to go back to your question, though, about the techniques. So three point lighting is the big one, but they're also doing vastly on the lens. I don't know if they ever really did that. I mean, Mm -hmm. I haven't really seen that. I mean, I think it's sort of a a metaphor, but they would deliberately unfocus though. They would do mm. bad focus on purpose to kind of create that. They would use they would open the lens to create a very narrow focus. You can think of this as kind of like the portrait mode on your iPhone camera that kind of creates that like really shallow focus and fuzzes out everything else. Um, so those are the kinds of things that they're doing with the lenses and the lighting. What sort of lighting ideology was Three Point taking the place of? Because in, in Germany, you had that very specific V pattern of lighting, which is the uh, sets of lights that emanate out almost a V if you draw a V from the shape of the camera towards the set, right? And that had a few artifacts, right? Like the dark spot, the famous dark spot and the multiple, you have like characters near a wall, you have eight shadows. Was there a sort of guiding kind of aesthetic, like one key light or even was the word key light not even there yet? What was guiding that? And what about three-point lighting represented an improvement from that? Yeah, I mean, you did have filmmakers like Cecil B. DeMille and John Seitz and his work on like Four Horsemen, The Apocalypse and the other Rudolph Valentino films using like core lighting or kind of, you know, this idea of they were starting to play with sort of lighting that tended to have like a heavier key light of some kind. The core lighting was like lighting from above that kind of created this is a bright key light from like the side and slightly behind in a weak fill. And it basically created this vertical band of shadow down the center, which kind of created that mysteriousness of Valentino. Mm-hmm. So you have people kind of playing with these things that would work with the high contrast film stock, but all, all the lighting techniques and, you know, three point lighting, they're all about glamour and they're all about storytelling. So I think if you're asking for like an ethos behind those, that's, that's their focus. So atmosphere beauty of like the imagery is really secondary to the storytelling and, and the, and the stars. So stars being the central to both glamour and storytelling is that one of the things you notice about the early sunlit movies is that the lighting really blankets everything. And so the actors kind of blend in with the backgrounds. And you can see this mm-hmm. in like if you watch like, you know, the early Griffith films and um, Lois Weber films and stuff is that there's kind of not a lot of differentiation between people and set, particularly because the camera tends to be further away from the actors um, because they're kind of taking in the hole um, and only kind of occasionally going in for close-ups. But what you see, what what was so key with why three-point lighting, I think, became such a standard more sort of than like core lighting was the fact that it differentiated the actors from the background. So again, movie stars, really key. It's like we want to we differentiate them. We want to pull them out. We want to make them set apart. So when you watch the films of the 1920s, you watch a Gloria Swanson movie, she is like, your eye goes right to her. And she's the embodiment of the story. And she's the embodiment of, you know, the stardom. And so that is why I think that becomes ethos. Prior to that, lighting doesn't really have like any kind of philosophical idea behind it. It's just like, can you see the image? Right. You know, and and so this is like the first thing that really develops. And it really develops in concert with all these other elements of the Hollywood studio system. 
As far as kind of what three-point lighting is, I mean, I, I should probably lay out that for, for our listeners who might not be as steeped in cinematography as us. Um, three-point lighting is a specific system of lighting that involves three lights in various configurations. You have your key light coming from one side, traditionally 45 degrees from above and the right of a subject. It's your brightest light. It exposes your subject. You have the fill light to fill in the shadow side, you know, softer and dimmer usually, and those two are separate variables. And then you have the backlight, which is usually a hard one light or a set of lights coming from rigged above the stage um, to create what you might call a rim light or a hair light to separate our subject from the background via use of contrast, which is all we had in this silent era because film stock was monochrome. So you had light, dark light on the background, which therefore kind of cuts. It's like the Matt Groening thing, you know, where Matt Groening said a good cartoon character is one you can know by their silhouette. Um, you're basically putting that onto actors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's one of those things when when they started working with Technicolor, they were like, oh, we don't really need the backlight. Like the three point lighting had to be kind of modified in some ways because you're like mm. color is doing a lot of the work that backlight was necessary for. Um, not that the need for it completely went away, but it's um, a technology like that really kind of alters the whole relationship. One question I have is about, and this is something that I think is the source of a lot of confusion and misunderstanding, the most common story about soft lighting, right? Soft lighting <laughs> means a source that is physically larger, which creates a gradient on the subject and on the background, softens shadows, that sort of thing. The most common story I hear by cinematographers who are in the know, at least as far as mid-late 20th century ago, is that contemporary soft lighting, we'll call it, was really pioneered mostly by, in terms of the modern traditions of that, is Subrata Mitra on uh, Aparajito in the mid 50s. That's the common story where they were shooting in studio because they couldn't afford a real apartment in Calcutta to shoot in. They had to match the look of Padre Pinchali, which was largely shot with natural light. So they bounced their lights off of muslin draped on the ceiling. Therefore, modern ideology of motivated soft light was invented. But I think it's it's a lot more complex than that. <laughs> and you have stuff like the Cooper Hewitt tubes and even just diffusion and even considering of the source size. What was the landscape of that in especially the 20s? Yeah, so they're mostly using carbon arcs early on, um, which were noisy and very bright and bluish. And that worked fine with orthochromatic film stock. So you you had this massive technological change in the in the mid to late 20s, which of course sound is a huge part of that. Really, but really prior to sound becoming something more than an experimental technology, we see a huge shift in lighting and film stock. So there was uh, films, panchromatic film stock had been developed by Kodak in like 1913. It's much more receptive to all colors of the spectrum. So orthochromatic has a lot of weird effects because it, in the modern era, we have these switches. We can just turn things black and white. We think, OK, there's just like this obvious gradients of gray that each color kind of fits into. And it's just not true in film stock. Film stocks would pick up different colors, different wavelengths very differently. So orthochromatic was not responsive to particularly reds. So you get all kinds of weird effects that you'll notice when you watch early films. Like I said, the high contrast, blonde, you can't really do blonde hair. Um, the sky never has any clouds. So try to find a movie <laughs> from before 1925 with clouds in the sky. It's a challenge. You know, that's where you get those dark lips. You know, the lipsticks would turn black. Um, mm -hmm. Those kinds of things that you that you associate with earlier films are because of the film stock. Incandescent lights were being developed at this time. You know, incandescent lights, just like the light bulbs that are, you know, still fairly common, though I think, you know, we've moved a little bit away from them, but, but that had that warmth to them. They couldn't really be used with the orthochromatic film stock. But when panchromatic film stock started becoming more available, which filmmakers really wanted, but Kodak hated making because it was just more expensive and cumbersome for them to make. So it wasn't until, you know, the mid 20s, they got some competition from DuPont and then they started making it available as a more competitive. Ah, we have panchromatic film stock. They don't. DuPont mm. developed it really quickly, but everybody switched immediately to panchromatic because it was so superior in terms of that kind of creating that softness. So, again, part of the softness that we see in films after 1926, those really like subtle shades of gray is because of that switch. So whether there was some innovation on, on Apogirito, I'm sure there was, but these kinds of innovations are happening, you know, mm -hmm. early on. But the switch to panchromatic film stock made incandescent lights 
feasible at the same time that GE was developing these large kind of searchlight bulbs. So searchlight technology from World War One was really key to, you know, the, the kind of the floodlights um, that were needed in order to film sets, right? You still need a ma- you still need a massive amount of light for film. This is not like completely gone away. We can work with a lot less light than before. But if you go into a modern studio, you still see a lot of light. Um, I mean, there was this kind of move towards you know, incandescents are better with sound because they're quieter. Of course, immediately the because, you know, they studios would own hundreds of lamps. So the companies who make carbon arcs immediately kind of fix that the snapping, crackling um, sounds that had never they never really had an incentive to really work on that problem, just like they never had an incentive before to make the cameras quiet. But once it was necessary, they did that. So they became two options that they had. And having those different forms of like, also really serves when, you know, when they co- go to Technicolor and color where you could use incandescent lights to create sunset effects and stuff because mm-hmm. of that warmth. I think this idea that black and white is just black and white is incorrect. And I think, you know, different colors and different lightings and different film stocks are going to render things very differently. And you can even, I mean, it's it's very easy to demonstrate this impact where if you, for example, were to shoot on black and white film stock, you put a red filter over the lens. The rendering of the colors into a monochromatic tonal range is going to be completely different. Yeah, no. And famously, uh, Carl Struess, the cinematographer, I just wrote an essay on him. So he's in my head. He was a cinematographer on Sunrise. And he also did Ben-Hur in 1925 and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1933. And in both of those, he used that red filter effect to create visual effects before the camera. So by changing out the the lens during the shot, um, he could show Jekyll turning into Hyde and he could show the the healing of the lepers by reverse, you know, doing it the opposite way. So the makeup was red and it would appear and disappear depending on the filters he was using. So you could create visual effects um, based on the mm-hmm. fact that the, the limits of the film stock um, created these possibilities. When three-point lighting starts to really take hold, there's a lot of kind of thought at, you know, especially expressed via the American Cinematographer magazine and various pieces written by various people on there um, about things like what you would call back then effects lighting and how that is actually rooted in theatrical traditions, right? There's this wonderful quote from the Stephen Keating book that I saved here by theater director David Belesco, who was apparently a slightly controversial figure because of his very elaborate lighting setups. And to hear him put it, I found this very interesting. There are thousands of chances for delicate strokes of illumination in a well-managed modern play, which neither the audience nor critic is likely to notice, yet which work unconsciously upon the feeling and imagination. To select the right opportunities for their use, to know how to contrive them, and at the same time how to conceal them is what makes the profession of stage director so difficult. Not only should he have a comprehensive knowledge of all arts, he must understand psychology and the physical science besides. So what he's describing there, and this is referred to by cinematographers of the era too, the idea of effects lighting, right? You have a certain fireplace or a lamp um, or a window in a scene and you put a light there to mimic that effect, that sounds an awful lot like contemporary ideas of what constitutes motivated lighting, right? Lighting that is, quote unquote, diegetically driven, basically excused by something in the story, right? Character turns on a lamp, you light something. And that runs a little counter to, I think, popular understandings of the, quote unquote, theatrical tradition of lighting of, you know, that era, right? The idea that it's all about almost expressiveness and glamour. But there is a certain grounding there. How did those ideas manifest in this era? And did they conflict? Like, what was the synthesis there? I'm very curious. I mean, this is a good point to kind of point out the difference between where the dormant industry kind of goes really in the years after Lubitsch leaves versus Hollywood. You get this beginning um, while he's still there with like Caligari and stuff. You get this very stylized kind of filmmaking in Germany that brings a lot of attention to its craft. And one of the important things in Hollywood is invisibility. Right? I'm assuming we talk about a lot in film history is this sort of the invisible style of Hollywood, of that it is glamour and it is creating effects and creating mood, but you shouldn't be noticing it. And this, mm. this always kind of comes up in award season. It's like subtlety versus showiness or, you know, a cinematographer like Emmanuel Lebesky is going to get a lot more attention because you notice what he's doing versus somebody like Roger Deakins, who usually works on a more subtle tone though he's become a little bit more stylistic 
and has gotten more awards, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, with stuff like Blade Runner and whatnot. And you see this in the pages of, of American cinematographer in the eras that I look at, like particularly look at it, somebody like Greg Tolan, who who does do a lot of effects lighting. I think a great example of effects lighting is The Grapes of Wrath, which I think is one of his, you know, Citizen Kane is what he's most known for. And part of why Citizen Kane was very controversial. It doesn't get awarded by the Academy or anything um, for cinematography because they really were, a lot of people were offended at how much attention it drew to its craft. Um, it's what mm-hmm. one of the things that makes it so teachable for us now. But it's like, no, you're you're breaking the rules of Hollywood, which is story first, right? Story and stars and realism. These are more important than making your pretty images. You still see those debates, right? Are you sacrificing story and absorption in this world to make a pretty picture? And he's often accused of that. If you look at a, uh, his work in Grapes of Wrath, um, you've got a couple scenes that are in theory lit entirely by a flame. There's the famous candle lit scene right at the beginning, yeah. which is not candle lit. There's no way, there was absolutely no way to light a, a scene like that with with a single candlelight um, in 1940. I can never tell whether it's lit by like a gag inside the candle or whether there's mm-hmm. some operator below holding a, a larger fixture. It's it's really well there's done. There's got to be a larger fixture. It's so well done. It does give yeah. you that illusion. And then there's another shot later where mama's burning the letters in the oven, um, mm-hmm. the stove. And, you know, the, the illusion is that the, that flame from the stove is the only light. There it's a little more obvious that the light is kind of coming than, than the, the candlelit scene. But yeah, it's there. There's definitely there's lights down there, like shooting up at the actors' faces mm-hmm. and stuff. Because they, you would have needed that with the quality of the film stock. The film stock has like an ESA of like forty at that time, maybe eighty. Mm-hmm. Versus today, the Ari Alexa sh- shoots at eight hundred normally, there and I go. think the most popular film stock. Anyways, it's uh, five hundred T, so f- yeah, five hundred exactly. for film, eight hundred for digital. And I think part of why that scene, that scene is maybe my favorite piece of lighting in history, just because I mean it's mind blowing. But what I think is striking about it is that. Toland was, he was almost working in a mode that feels almost out of time where mm-hmm. almost any other cinematographer, you know, give or take James Wong Howe, who in The Thin Man, he does some really wild stuff. Mm-hmm. But most cinematographers at the time would, you know, probably have a backlight or something. You know, they probably have more than one kind of no- noticeable source. But the fact that Toland has only, I mean, I'll, I mean, I'll be I'll be damned if you use less than like five sources, right? But like there's like one notable source in that scene. And the fact that he commits so hard to that feels very almost anachronistic. Yeah. Oh, the the film, I think it's I in my class, I, sh- I show that as well as Citizen Kane, because just show what he does in Kane with deep focus is not like the whole of his bag of tricks. But yeah, as you said, when you pull out shots, you know, when you watch the film, the acting and the actors and all that stuff very much place it in its time. But when you like just look at screenshots, it looks like it could have been done in the 70s, you know, 60s or 70s. If you take away the aspect ratio, it, it could it could have been shot in like 79. Mm-hmm. Which today people shoot in that aspect ratio, but in the 70s, they did not. So to kind of return to the idea of effects lighting, you know, the realism is also a value. It's not, it's the kind of heightened realism of, of Hollywood. You know, it's not like, you know, the kind of gritty realism that we associate that word with today. We always talk about realisms um, because the idea of what is realistic constantly changes and there's different versions of it. But the point was it needed to be realistic enough that it just didn't draw attention to itself. So even when you look at really glamorous movies like Thin Man or, you know, um, musicals and stuff in the 1930s, they still, you know, the lighting is is not going to draw attention to itself. It's not going to pull you out of the movie. And that was a really important part of the Hollywood studio system is that they're selling dreams, they're selling stories, they're selling stars. And the artistry of the cinematographer was not meant to, to draw away from that, which is part of why Greg Tolan was a controversial figure in his time, particularly in the 1940s. In the 1930s, he's not quite audacious enough yet. Um, so he gets his Academy Award in 1939. Um, for Withering Heights, which is a beautiful movie and has little bits of his style as it would develop, but is a much more typical example of a sort of glamorous soft style um, from the 1930s. So beautiful, you know, beautifully shot. But the community was very clear that that was the kind of cinematography they wanted from him, not the kind of stuff he was doing on Kane or Grapes of Wrath, where he kind of takes his style to its 
ultimate place um, in the best years of our lives. Tolan is such an outlier there. And John Seitz was like the Prince of Darkness of that era. He was the Gordon Willis of the era. So John Seitz would like, mm. he would send stuff to the lab and the lab would just be like, please be an image, please be an image. On the <laughs> so his stuff were um, his, no, particularly his noirs that he did with Billy Wilder. They, he really kind of tested the bounds of how dark he could make an image. So I think to like Tolan is, is an outlier because he really dedicated his whole style to that. What you get with people like John Seitz is like they're, they're journeymen in a, in a lot of ways and they're going to, they can do all these things. So, you know, they can do the things that Tolan does. They choose not to because they are kind of servants of the system and they're like, mm-hmm. what's, what's called for on this particular film. And that's true going back in the 1920s where they're like, Oh, you want us to work in the German style? We can do that. And I think that's the kind of key that you get with Hollywood cinematographers is that there are these craftsmen who can, you know, if they wanted to do stylistic, really out there kind of things. So like Carl Struess, you know, who I just wrote about, he does really out there things on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And then he becomes like, he does Bing Crosby movies for the rest of the 1930s <laughs> um, that have nothing interesting about their style whatsoever, um, because that's what it was called for. Like, you wouldn't want to see Citizen Kane's style on a Bing Crosby movie. The kind of idea of cinematographer as... Uh, almost as auteur is really an exception, right? I mean, you have figures like Greg Tolan, Gordon Willis, or the modern era, Lubezki. You look at their film and you're like, this has more in common with the films you made with other directors than that director's films do with themselves, right? You know, Bruno Delbonel, I think, is a great example of that. But the vast, vast majority of cinematographers, um, you know, Owen Reisman recently passed away and uh, it brought my attention to an interview he gave where he basically said that, you know, in his earliest days, he was a ad man, right? He would shoot glamorous commercials. That was what he was pigeonholed into. And then he makes French Connection and suddenly he's pigeonholed has, oh, your style is gritty New York, isn't it? And he would say, my style is that I do a good job. <laughs> you know, you know. in so many words, he said, I'm very heavily paraphrasing, but my style is that I can do these things. My style is that I can, I can carry out what you director want. I think that is an underrated skill sometimes because it's I think we have this tendency to to want to see people as these sort of individual artists. And so we celebrate a Greg Tolan or even to a certain extent, like a James Wong Howe um, for his sort of naturalism in the 50s and 60s. I think that kind of that adaptability is like an amazing skill when you can see somebody working across comedies and and mm-hmm. action movies and, and and creating the style that is so is suited to that subject matter. The idea of that you brought up earlier, I want to touch upon the idea of realism, um, because there's a way that realism and naturalism and all those kind of that that galaxy of phrases um, is spoken of that I find I you know kind of misses the goal <laughs> of of what filmic artists are doing because there's almost this idea that okay back in the day back in the old bad days cinematographers were not going for realism they were going for a theatrical expressiveness and that's a real post hoc thing right because it only looks like theatrical expressiveness because what's really changed is not that we've had a march towards the real but that the definition the language of the real has changed you know it's just like our definition of real you know dim film emulated uh, pastel color cinematography or like low contrast digital is not going to strike someone 100 years from now as quote unquote the real of that language of real they're speaking you know maybe they ever want to be on VR headsets at that point but who knows you know we talk about different kinds of realism and realism is a realism is a very relative term and can mean so many different things in naturalism and, and they're historically grounded terms so what is realism in one era isn't necessarily what's realism in um, the next. It might, it suddenly looks really phony or it looks overly stylized. So, you know, the kind of realism of handheld shaky camera and, <laughs> you know, atmospheric lighting, whatever that, that, that has like, per, you know, been pervasive for the last 15 years or whatever is started to look just like a style now, you know, to your point, it's, it, it's just something that changes over time. And I think in classical Hollywood, you know, when Lubitsch comes in there, it's kind of, yeah, it's like realism and glamour are always at odds. And so it's always a balance. So and I think you know, Patrick Keating talks about the art of balance, um, mm-hmm. which is like not letting it fall too far in one direction or the other. And when it does fall too far in one direction there, it tends to be maligned in some way. So when you have Joseph von Sternbergen in the Marlena Dietrich films going way too far into glamour, which is so (laughs) that is the pleasure of those films is that they are not realistic at all. You know, Shanghai Express is 
maybe the most realistic or Morocco, maybe the most realistic. And then they get really crazy in the last couple that they did together. But Scarlet Empress and, and such like these are like they're so over the top. And, and again, that's the pleasure of them. But in terms of how they were received at the time, it was like they tipped so far into glamour that, again, it brought attention to the technique. Um, it lost sight of any kind of sense of realism. But, you know, the cinematography on, you know, bringing up baby is no more realistic, right? The lighting is just as artificial, but it's not drawing attention to itself. So when you put those two, you know, things into dialogue with each other, you're like, well, bringing a baby is a much more realistic looking movie than Scarlet mm-hmm. Empress, right? Just to give a really strange comparison. So again, it's like, it's relative. The word relative there seems really important because Keating mentions this, uh, this really kind of opened up a lot of doors in my mind. It's a question of differences. And he uses often the question of, you know, heteronormative gender differences. You have the three point setup, but for in this case, men, you would move the key off to the side, create a no shadow. In this case, women, you would key them more from the front, maybe soften the key. The separation between those two in a pretty narrow bandwidth is what creates expressiveness. Yeah. I mean, you've got examples in uh, Ernst Lubitsch's Angel. You've got, you know, these mm-hmm. scenes with Marlena Dietrich is just is shot through gauze, basically. And then the man she's standing in the same space with is shot, you know, as you said, with the, uh, the key off to the side a little bit. So he gets the nose shadow, looks more masculine um, in, you know, some gendered uh, way of lighting. And yet, because we've kind of been brought there with the narrative that we want her to look like that. Like it's, it's atmospheric. It's tells it's part of the story. It doesn't pull you out of it unless you're trying to draw attention to yourself. So, we know, when I'm teaching classical high cinematography, it kind of, it's, you have to be at pains to, to notice this mm-hmm. stuff because it's designed for you not to notice it. It's designed just to have an effect on you where you're just like, Oh, she's amazing and beautiful. And doesn't you want to kiss her as opposed to um, being like, Ooh, doesn't where's that lighting coming from? That's so beautiful. <laughs> no, it's not, <laughs> it's not meant, you're not meant to have that effect. And that would, um, most cinematographers of that era would see it as a failure. If what you're thinking about is how pretty the shot is. And and yet there seems to be have been a lot of discourse the era of, around that right you know um the idea of the cinematographer as, as a photographic artist versus as a servant of the story and you know should blend into the shadows. A lot of the dialogue about establishing themselves as artists is in the 1920s. To kind of go back to Griffith and stuff like that, when Griffith came into the industry back in, you know, 1908, cameramen and directors were essentially, like, director was a new position. It was essentially a stage manager. They were saying, you know, Mm -hmm. the stories are starting to get more elaborate. We need somebody to kind of just focus on the stories and actors so the cameraman can focus on the camera because the director was the cameraman prior to that. So they're pretty equal. And Billy Bitzer and, you know, as a veteran in 1908 um, is paired with Griffith, they're pretty equal. By the end of this sort of short period of them making short films, they're moving into feature films. Griffith kind of asserts himself as this, as an auteur, essentially, without mm-hmm. using that word, which doesn't come in until, you know, post-war era. But he basically says, I'm responsible for all these innovations. I'm the artist behind the film. And that kind of really sets this idea that the director is the, is the artist. He's, you know, they're he mostly, but there's a lot more women back then. They're the artists on the film and the cinematographer sort of is working under them. So what you get in the 1920s is Kimmerman really trying to assert that they are not just like any other technician. They're trying to actually separate themselves from kind of the crew below them and say, no, Mm -hmm. we're on par with the directors and the writers. Um, We're not the rest of the crew. The rest of the crew works under us. And they pretty successfully established that to this day. Cinematographers are kind of, you know, the most celebrated of the quote unquote below the line workers. They're the only ones who there's not many sound engineers other than like maybe Walter March that anyone could name. And most film buffs could probably name a dozen cinematographers pretty easily, you know. So that that kind of campaign that they wage in the 1920s is fairly, fairly successful. So that's pretty established by the time. I mean, you see the sort of last struggle on that with sound where actual set practices really kind of hurt their status and they reassert mm-hmm. themselves really quickly. From then on, I, I think that that becomes less of an issue of them trying to prove that they're artists. They've kind of, they've got an Academy Award, they've gotten their name in the credits, um, they've gotten this new title of director of photography. So they've kind of done that work already at that time. So sound, to my understanding, brings with it a certain degree of homogenization in the industry because you have these extra technical concerns. For example, labs need to be developing in a more systemic way. They need to be talking to each other because of the nature of soundtracks and syncing. And you also have the technical burden of having to mic everyone. 
and having to record dialogue and even things like just focusing on faces during dialogue scenes was more of a burden. Did that have any kind of other knock-on effects on the art of cinematography or how it was perceived too? Huge, huge effect. I mean, so everything was affected. Um, you know, set materials were affected, costumes, obviously actors. We've gotten so many different movies um trying to about the travails yes, of actors. And, I mean, I mean, even Babylon. Like every time a new movie about Holly comes out, I was like, really? They're gonna deal with the sound thing again. Um, <laughs> it's just every single time. Even the new the new uh, Down Abbey movie was about that. Was like, really? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I, people are really interested in that, how that like affects actors and actors with strange voices. So, you know, so I, I, I feel like Singing in the Rain said what needed to be said about that. But anyway, so it has this huge effect. And cinematographers are pretty on top of this, where they're just like, this is having massive effects. So, you know, the first effect is that the camera has to be silenced. The cameras were pretty loud um, and the sound was being picked up. And so they had to, they initially, they put them in these giant boxes and the camera was in the box of the camera, which was pretty horrific and not fun and really limiting for the camera because then the camera lens also has this piece of glass in front of it. You can't really bring it in. You're, you're relying on focusing from far away. Um, so, you know, if you watch the early shorts, they're all filmed very much like the very early movies from the 1890s, that, you know, with the kind of the mm. full body shot. When you watch the kind of vaude, the early vaudeville kind of um, stuff that, that uh, Warner Brothers was doing. And then they develop various blimps and blankets and things like that and blimping, um, which is just a box around the camera itself. And then the camera companies also silence things. So that's one thing um, right there. So it really affects the kind of angles that you can use. The camera kind of pulls away. And you think about what we're talking about. This is this era of soft lighting, tons of close ups, lots of figure lighting. And now the camera has to be far away. The lights also has to be far away because the camera's far away. So you don't want to see the lights in the image. So then now you're, instead of this kind of really subtle, nuanced lighting, now you're just like doing sitcom lighting, right? Like blasting mm -hmm. the stage with light so that everything's lit equally. And, you know, if you look at Lubitsch's like the, the, the love parade, you can kind of see the sort of flat lighting that you get in that. It is a very kind of stage bound feel, um, even though that is one of the best mo 1929 movies um, in terms of has dealing with sound. The lighting's not as interesting as any movie. If you look silent films from the same year or even a year or two earlier, looks so much more sophisticated um, than the movies from 1929. So the, can't, you know, the camera can't move. The lights have to be further away. As you were saying, the lab has to have a kind of standardization of the frame rate. Prior to this point, there's no standard frame rate. Um, there's common frame rates, um, you know, 24 frames or 16 frames, but there's no standard. In fact, movie theaters were known to crank up the frame rates so they could get more showings in a day. And, you know, and even on like dramas and stuff, it would like play it fast. So and cameramen were prone to also cranking at the at a speed that they thought was appropriate for the scene. So they might crank slower on comedy to get a faster image and crank faster on something that they wanted to be slower and stuff. So they were used to kind of creating their own rhythm of cranking the camera. But at the same time, they thought like camera cranking is so mechanical, it kind of reduced what they did to this kind of mechanical element. And so moving to motors that were standardized to 24 frames per second, so they would match the soundtrack, it that was not controversial. Like it kind of, it did take away an element um, that they had control over, but at the same time, it allowed them to not be seen as just mechanics. So that kind of ended up working in their favor in that way. So you don't see them pushing back against that the way they are with the boxed-in cameras and the lighting far away. And they they do a lot of, with the coming of sound, a lot of the early films were shot like sitcoms with three or four cameras at once so that the soundtrack would be common between them. So you could easily cut between them because they would have the same soundtrack. But you can't light for multiple shots at the same time. And as you know from sitcom lighting, is is incredibly skillful because you add how you create how you can light an entire apartment and there's no shadows on anybody is amazing um but it's not the nuanced kind of soft lighting that they wanted to do at this time so you know they, there are these meetings that happen at the academy which is like a new institution at this time to talk about these things and cinematographers are like how do we light for a close-up and they're like you don't <laughs> um, and this is really distressing for them. And so it was something that they really wanted to fix. And then the sound engineers actually said, you know what, this kind of shooting doesn't really work for us either, because close ups should sound different than long shots, too. They shouldn't sound the same because of the way sound moves in space. Right. Um, so they what you see is once they kind of start talking to each other about what actually are ideal conditions to create 
the best, most immersive storytelling, they realize that this kind of shooting is not actually ideal. Um, and they kind of return to, um, especially once mm. they have the blimped cameras, they return to a style that's very similar to to what we have before, but doesn't quite have the freedom. And it's really great to look at those really late silent era films of, you know, Lubitsch's student prints of Hold Heidelberg or but in particularly films like Wings and Sunrise, where you can see just like the freedom of the camera of that late, late silent era right before sound comes in. It's really spectacular um, and never quite returns, but it pretty by 1932, it's pretty much returned. You can really see a difference. Trouble in Paradise feels like a big turning point for the bitch where suddenly his camera's swooping out of windows. Sometimes it's like co- combining with model shots, which is great. And then by Mary Widow, the camera, it's, uh, it's as active. I mean, pro- I think Mary Widow might be the single film of his where the camera is most active. The camera, that thing moves. I mean, something Lubitsch realized really early on in 1929 with like uses in the love parade is that you didn't need to stage everything for sound because not every shot needs sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he would he would be like, well, which see which shots do we actually need to have the microphones on um, and which ones do we not and shoot in a more fluid way, take the camera out of the box for those shots where you didn't actually need the synchronized sound where it could be dubbed over or it was just music. So, you know, at that time in 1929, you only have single track recording, which means all the sound has to be recorded at once, either on set or in post. You couldn't combine post and on set. So if you're recording dialogue on set, that's all. There's no music behind it. Hmm. You're just going to hear the the dialogue. And if you hear music, you're just going to hear the music unless the the dialogue is post-dubbed, which Hollywood's rendering of this period would tell you everything was post-dubbed. It, re- it wasn't really that common to post-dub dialogue because it's, as we know, it's like never quite. Yeah, if you listen, I mean, just one listener of like Morocco would tell you <laughs> that. Like yeah. the, 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 the set sounds like they're in a Costco warehouse or something. Yeah, yeah. Morocco's a great one, um, which I believe Burt Glennon shot. Like, is that it, it's such a really interesting movie because the interiors, which is where all the dialogue is, are very stationary. The lighting's mm-hmm. not as interesting. And then you get outside and you have these massive tracking shots <laughs> and all this like crazy camera work because clearly they're not shooting sound um, of those like, you know, shots across the, the, the desert and things like that. By 1932, you get four track recording. And that really changes mm. things because it frees it up. You can have onset sound and music and post of sound effects and dialogue, it gives them more flexibility, right? So when you have a dialogue scene, you're not so beholden to the microphones and such. So, And the microphones have become more sensitive and mm-hmm. directional so that you can be more particular about what they pick up. The cameras have been better silenced. Um, all that 1932 is the kind of pivot point where they've kind of worked out the kinks. So in a film like The Love Parade, which is Lubitsch's first musical, first full sound film. You would have Marie Chevalier and Jeanette MacDonald actually singing live on set with an orchestra playing, right? And then that would be recorded to one track versus The Merry Widow that was five years later. What was the uh, workflow behind something like that? It was more, I mean, I think it became coming really early on for music to be done separately. So they recorded separately and either played on set or um, recorded afterwards. So they would, they would be singing on set, but not recording it and then they would record it later. So that post dubbing yeah. of sound with singing, because it's much easier to match singing, mm-hmm. um, was much more common. Dialogue was not that common. You know, for instance, you look at the jazz singer, which we you know only has these few moments of live sound. They tend to be musical sequences and the music is being played on set. So the mm-hmm. instruments are right there. So yeah, if you were going to have dialogue or singing live, that means any backing music had to be created right there on yeah. set. That's deeply impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's it's like just miraculous when you like get into the nitty gritty of how they did all this. Um, you're like, yeah. Um, and how they, it just was, it was so thrust on them from above. The cinematographers did not want to convert to sound. A lot of the actors and directors did not want to convert to sound. I mean, the writers probably did and the executives did because they saw it was making money. And, you know, that was their their concern was that this is going to make make more money. Those movies were doing better than the silent films. The initial thought of the studios when they were sold this technology was how much it would save them in their movie theaters because they had to pay for musicians in every one of their movie mm-hmm. theaters. And they all own these, you know, they're increasingly owning these big movie theater chains. And employing all of these musicians, many of whom are unionized already, um, unlike the workers in Hollywood at this time, that was really expensive, especially the bigger, you know, if you're Paramount and you own 1,200 movie theaters and you employ musicians every single one of those, it's a huge expense. So the idea that you could send a pre-recorded soundtrack 
of music was really appealing um, for that reason. So that's why some of the earliest sound films like Sunrise are just soundtrack with a couple of effects, um, not dialogue mm. at all. And because that's how they saw it playing out. And then, you know, it was really with the Warner Brothers shorts and and the jazz singer and the King of New York and such that showed that like, oh, people want dialogue because I mean, that was it's a whole other technology that on set recording um, versus just the the synchronization and amplification and recording. There's like three parts to it. And like the lights, these are technologies that are not developed for the film industry. They're developed by these industries for other reasons. You know, the recording and the amplification was done for PA systems. Then these companies like AT&T are like, what else can we use this technology for? Who can we sell this to? Uh, it's uh, another reminder of how so many of these things that seem inevitable are there because of um, just market forces. So as we kind of move into the 40s and 50s, even the you know heights of the studio system or whatever. But how especially does film lighting evolve as we get into those kind of what we might call the golden era or what is popularly remembered as the golden era? What changes in, in, in lighting norms? So we see that most of the sort of rules are set in the silent era in the teens and 20s. Um, so they're not creating a bunch of new rules. They sort of, you know, all those the things we've already talked about, the, the rules of editing in terms of where you put the camera and the rules of motivations for lighting are all kind of just they're set and they kind of just have these subtle variations. So what you see in the 1930s is increasingly better film stock. Um, so the ASAs pumping up from 20 to 40 to 80 to I think 160. And so you get a sharp, you're getting a sharper image. And so you can look at a film from 1932, like um, Trouble in Paradise, and compare it to To Be or Not to Be, and you see this much sharper image in the latter film. Mm. And we see less softness. So basically, by the mid-1930s, the gauziness of the late 20s and early 30s is seen as very old-fashioned. And so that kind of look that we get in those Marlene Dietrich films or in the late silent films is again, it kind of it's another era. It's another time. And this kind of sharper look that we get in the late 1930s and into the 1940s, it's still soft, right? It's still kind of softer than a modern look. But, you know, if you look at something like Nanochka, right, you were still seeing the real soft lighting on Garbo, but it has a much sharper image with more gradients of gray because of the increased quality of the film stock um, mm -hmm. during this period. Increasingly, even more so than in the 20s and 30s, this real focus on invisibility. Um, that mm -hmm. when you watch To Be or Not To Be or Nanochka or something, you're not thinking about the cinematography. Like you just struggle <laughs> to think about it. Right? I, I would say that my one exception in that period is actually To Be or Not To Be because Rudolf Matei does some pretty cool stuff with underlighting in that. Like there's scenes in there that feel, again, but I was going to say that feel more like a noir, but that's just, again, that differentiation, right? It's still absolutely within the wheelhouse of classical Hollywood lighting. Noir is not really separate from classical Hollywood. It's a piece of classical mm. Hollywood, right, that kind of branches off. And you can find shots in most classical Hollywood movies that look noirish. And you can find classical shots in every noir film. They're, the Venn diagram does cross over, right? They're not totally separate. And the, P, and the cinematographers work across them. There's no cinematographers who work exclusively in noir. Not a single one. Mm. Every single one of them also works in what we'd consider more classical style films. What makes noir different, the the beauty of the image or the interestingness of the image and the kind of realism that, you know, again, a new kind of realism, mm -hmm. a grittiness begin to be valued over the kind of typical focus on glamour. And it's a different kind of glamour, right? A sort of gritty, sleazy glamour. But it all kind of works within the system, right? Because it works towards the storytelling. And then as the 40s gave way to the 50s, you had a few major changes to the technology. The standardization of color throughout the 50s, color became the default instead of the exception. And two, just as important, aspect ratios changes and film stocks got more diverse, right? So you had academy ratio standardized with the sound era mostly. It was 1952 or three, you had the introduction of a flat 185 spherical widescreen and then cinemascope and also like, you know, my favorite format ever, Cinerama. <laughs> you had, you know, 70 mil coming later that decade. I mean, you had VistaVision, you had all these, basically the shape of films changed, the Pretty size good. of cameras changed, the, as far as anamorphic is concerned, the burdensome nature of lenses changed, um, and color. How did all those affect lighting? What's interesting about all the technological changes of the 50s is that they're the same ones that in the 1920s. It's, it's sort of what takes is different, but wide film, widescreen, 
color all being innovated in the late 1920s at the same time sound is sound and then these you know more behind the scenes kind of changes with panchromatic film stock and incandescent lights are the ones that really stick because they're the ones that are most effective and most adaptable into the system and and what you see in hollywood is with technology is that if it can't be adapted into the system and its values it gets thrown out right Um, we see this repeatedly with 3d 3D cannot be adapted into the system because it draws attention to itself. Um, it ruins the kind of illusion of the absorption and voyeurism. At least this is my view of 3D. And so, it, and and I think VR suffers the same thing when you try to use it as a storytelling medium. Those ki- those kinds of effects tend to to get thrown out. What you have in the 1950s is this um, down huge downturn in the industry in the late 1940s due to several factors, the introduction of television probably being the biggest one. People could stay home, especially now that they're living in the suburbs. The idea of going back downtown where all the movie theaters are when you've just driven home, driven home from, you know, from work to the suburbs when you have television now. And most of what's on television is old movies in the Academy ratio and black and white. And like, so there's a differentiation. So we need to find ways to be different than television. And so television is black and white. So let's make more movies in color. Television is Academy ratio. Let's widen the image. And so these things, which had been tried before and kind of thrown out as unnecessary, become more necessary. Um, and also because we have the breakup of the studio system, Paramount decision in 1948, which means they can't block book. They can't, they're not doing as many double features. So movies really have to stand on their own. So there's this kind of idea that they're making fewer movies, but they're bigger and better movies, which is why, even though this is like, you know, the downturn or decline of Hollywood, some of the best movies are made in the 1950s and early 60s. I'm sure Lubitsch would have continued to thrive thrive in this era. It yeah. Really, it's such a tragedy. That it's such a tragedy. He would have done so well. We didn't on, get late Lubitsch. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I'm trying to imagine if he would have kind of gone in the same kind of like sex comedy avenue that so many comedy directors in the 1950s did. I don't think he ever would have gone as far as Billy Wilder did <laughs> in his later years, but, um, but I, it would have been interesting to see where he would have gone. Just to go back to the 30s and 40s when Lubitsch is working, like there, it's these little subtle changes in that. And it's part of what makes the classical era, which, you know, the or the golden age of, you know, 1930 to 1945 is so stable is that there's not huge technological upheavals. You know, there's not a huge difference in the way a movie from 1935 looks versus the one from 1945 um, in the way that 25 to 35 or 45 to 55, right? You see a, a much bigger jump in those decades. These technologies, it's not like they just suddenly invented them. It's like there was suddenly a necessity and the, the infrastructural you know, expense was worth it because they needed to get people back to movie theaters. They also needed to raise the, the prices and stuff. So by making the movies bigger, more spectacular, they could justify that. It's interesting how many directors and cinematographers do got, get caught in that crossfire. I, I've always point to something like uh, Vincent Minnelli's experience making Brigadoon as as a cautionary tale. You have um, directors basically having all this thrust upon them. Just like sound, it kind of these decisions are kind of coming from above without kind of thinking about the ramifications of how this is actually going to affect production practices. And so much of the burden of figuring it out falls on the cinematographer's partially by their own design, right? They want to be the ones to solve these problems so that they can maintain their control over the set. Just to give a kind of really brief history of each of these, Technicolor is created in the 19-teens with this goal of creating color motion pictures. They're only ever marketing to Hollywood for commercial production. They create various systems in the 20s that kind of partially get the you know the way there. And then it's in the mid-1930s that they get the three-color Technicolor, which is this hugely cumbersome process. So it adds this huge expense to production. Technicolor maintains a huge amount of control over the process. They own the cameras. They own the film stock. They are they require technicians of their yeah. own, including a color consultant, um, to be on every single Technicolor film. And that really limits the number of Technicolor films that can be made because of that sort of this one company controlling and having a monopoly. And they, they are accused of monopoly practices and they have an antitrust case right around the same time as the Paramount decision. They get broken up and basically... M- mostly because they, the technology wasn't available to independent producers. And during you know, the height of the studio system, independent producers are not hugely significant. The, the few significant ones like Selznick and Goldwyn, they're able to get Technicolor, but you know, it's really kind of the smaller studios and things like that that don't. But by the time the Technicolor monopoly is broken up, there is also just a, a cheaper technology of single strip color 
that was made available because it had been developed in Germany. And then post-war, that technology gets shared because all German technology and patent information <laughs> gets shared. So everybody's able to make uh, color film stock. So that makes that ubiquitous. So it's, the timing on color is less of that sort of it's an economic necessity because actually color doesn't take over. It's like there's a sort of mm -hmm. like huge flood of it in the early 1950s. And then it kind of stabilizes throughout the 1950s. And it's totally genre focused. So Lubitsch likely would have worked in both depending on sort of like this because comedy, comedy tended to be more more black and white, but then sometimes there's color depending on the topic or how like big of a production it was, what movie stars were involved. And it's really not until the mid 60s that color becomes dominant because mm. of television going color. And again, most of TV is old movies and they don't want to show black and white movies anymore. <laughs> and so the studio said, well, we got to make our movies in color. Um, so it can, it's like economic incentives. But throughout the 50s and into the 60s, it's very much film by film. And they're both equally, you know, that's why you get great black and white like I, my favorite are black and white widescreen movies because it's sort of mixing those technologies. So movies like HUD mm -hmm. by the great James Wong Howe, that's one I always show because I just, I love just like Christmas, like the amazing black and white cinematography, the location shooting, all these things that we associate with the post-war, the widescreen and the location shooting, but mixed with a, this classic black and white. So yeah, again, the widescreen, the Academy ratio, on the other hand, just disappears. Maybe it has to do with the logistics of the movie theaters, that it was too hard to kind of oscillate between Academy ratio and CinemaScope. When CinemaScope is introduced in 1953, very quickly, uh, you know, about a quarter of the movies are being made in it. Um, and most movie theaters, because it was an easy adaptation, unlike Cinerama was not an easy adaptation. It, it, you had to build theater specialty for it. So that was never going to be something that would take over the industry because it required so much infrastructural change in the same way that 70 millimeter was never going to because you'd have to just you'd have to remake all of the projectors because they're made for 35 millimeter. Adding sound to the to the projectors was way easier than changing the size of the film stock. Cinemascope didn't require that. It just required you to get a new lens and then a new screen, which is a you know, it's a it's an investment, but it's not the investment that some other technological changes would be. So though Academy Ratio has made a comeback in recent years, which is oh, is mysterious and interesting. Yes, which I'm very happy about. <laughs> I, I love boxy frames. I just I yeah. love them. It, it is the frame of the close up. Mm -hmm. It is the frame of Hollywood, like of, of like movie stars. There are amazing close ups in widescreen, but but Academy Ratio is built for it. Yeah. I mean, it's I always point to Sergio Leone as I think he's my favorite purveyor of Cinemascope, even though he never worked in the format. He always worked in Technoscope, which is spherical. But I just think that ratio, he always found such in incredible ways to fill it, right? He would have, he would choose the widest brim hats. My, my great example of a really bad early cinemascope when they hadn't figured out how to stay, you know, just like you have early bad sound movies from 1929, 30, you have really bad cinemascope movies from mm -hmm. the two movies that were done in Cinerama are terrible. How the West one is not terrible, but it's like the cinematography <laughs> is just like distracting and, and the brothers grim. It's, it's my favorite gimmick movie to put on. <laughs> it's, it's so bad. I mean, but I love, I mean, the Ford part is I think pretty wonderful, yeah. but it's like the movie is like the tackiest. The, the, the directors were like, how am I, they were like constantly in the frame and stuff like it. It's just it, it's not it's not for storytelling. Yeah. Um, but Cinemascope, there's the one I show is like How to Marry a Millionaire, which I think in my head is always like, oh, this is a beautiful movie. No, uh, Gentleman Before Blonde is a beautiful Technicolor mm -hmm. Academy ratio. How to Marry a Millionaire, which is Gene Agulescu, you know, it's like good, good people, but they just did not know what they were doing. And so they have all these shots where they just don't know what to put in the frame. And they have Lauren Bacall like sticking her leg out to fill the frame while she's on a phone call because they don't know like how to make it interesting. They have them moving around like unnecessarily. And I'm convinced that the reason they made it was like a romantic comedy with three leads because they were like, you have to fill the, you know, and you get seven brides for seven brothers. And like you get all of these like movies with multiple leads because they're just trying to fill the, the screen. Seeing them adapt it back into that system of invisibility glamour, storytelling, realism, all these kinds of things that are always so key to what makes Hollywood Hollywood. It happens over time, but there's always fun little artifacts from that transition. It is interesting to me, the maximalism of the number of fixtures used in Hollywood. For me, my favorite example of like what Hollywood can do in the 50s is and has been for a while North by Northwest. Robbie Burks in that film, Any Daylight Interior, is lit in a very similar manner as 
the Hitchcock's or anyone's films from the 30s and 40s, right? You have many, many fixtures creating these distinct three-point zones throughout. It's lit in that very recognizable Hollywood studio system way. And the ideology behind, for example, the number of sources used, what's motivating the sources, I start to see a real common shift in a lot of movies, basically around the turn of the decade between the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. What was happening in Hollywood that caused lighting to not change? And then as far as the 70s, especially famously go to really radically change. I think of the important like caveat to everything is that when you talked about the influence of Bengali cinema is that people in Hollywood are always watching everything. So they're always talking about, did you mm -hmm. see this new thing? What have you? And incorporating these, what they see. Part of how Hollywood stayed dominant is by absorbing everything. When mm -hmm. they invite Lubitsch, you know, he's one of the earliest examples of this. When they invite Lubitsch to Hollywood, it enriches Hollywood and it depletes the German industry. And that sustains Hollywood and they'll continue to do that. When somebody wins the Academy Award for Best International Film, what's the next thing they do? They make a Hollywood movie, right? So Hollywood absorbs them. Mm -hmm. Some of them go back, but some of them just get absorbed into the system. So what I think you see in the 30s and 40s and, and 50s is that uh, there's not a lot of strong industries elsewhere. So we have the German cinema in the 1920s. We don't see a lot of other industries that really kind of emerge really well after after World War One. World War One was like this key moment where everybody's on pause, but Hollywood. Hollywood's accelerating. And by the end of World War One. Everybody wants Chaplin and Pickford and Fairbanks, right? Um, and so Hollywood, that's when it becomes dominant. Most of what everyone else is doing is not is watching Hollywood movies. And so there's not a lot of influence to absorb internationally in the 30s and 40s. And again, after World War II, the Marshall Plan is used in a lot of ways to assert Hollywood into places where it hadn't been dominant. Um, Germany, because of the Nazis, <laughs> Japan, because of their vital industry, they really try to like take over. They it's Japan's the one place that, that Hollywood's never really had total foothold. Um, they're really trying to to dominate the world. But what we do see happening in the late 40s and particularly in the 1950s is this flowering of the international film world, the art cinema network basically emerges out of World War II. It's just like the UN um, and NATO and all these things, these sort of internationalism of the 1950s, which is like a huge part of, you know, what happens in that decade is also the Cannes Film Festival and the revival of the Venice Film Festival, which had been, you know, started by Mussolini in the 30s, but gets revived in the 50s. And it's very in, less of it just a celebration of Italian cinema and more of this international. And, and you see this right here in Hollywood. This is all these old movie theaters that were falling apart in downtowns get converted to art house cinemas and they're showing international cinema for the first time. We have a huge population in the U.S. after the war who have internationally traveled for the first time. And then international travel for vacation and stuff also becomes possible. So you get a much bigger exchange even than just within the industry, but that American audiences are watching The Bicycle Thieves and they're watching The Red Shoes and Kurosawa's films. And so you do see a greater international influence. And you can see that right away in stuff like, you know, Roman Holiday that just takes place in those places. But then you start to see a more more aesthetic influence as you get into the 1960s, particularly the sort of move towards naturalism and real, you know, newer kind of um, realism that is less glamorous. It has a huge influence on Hollywood. And then in 1966, Kodak releases a new film stock, which is the first film stock that really allows you to light with natural lighting. And this is the film stock that allows for things like Days of Heaven that uses all these kind of the magic hour kind of filming, uh, which just wasn't possible prior to that. So there's a technological reason. There's a cultural reason, this influence of international art cinema. And then also the loss of the production code also creates new kinds of subject matters that are also not going to be treated in the kind of glamorous way. One of the things I always point out is it's still the same people. Bernard Guffey, who does Bonnie and Clyde, had been around since the 20s. The cinematographer who does The, the Graduate, Robert Surtees, also around since the 1920s. On The Graduate, the, this young director, Mike Nichols, is like, I want you to do this in this French New Wave style. And he's like, eh, I don't really like that style, but sure, I can do it. Right. Both of them, like they didn't want to do it, they, but they're like, I can do it. And I can win an Academy Award doing this. You know, that is the adaptability of the, the, the classic Hollywood cinematographer is that they can look at these um, French New Wave films and be like, yeah, I can do that. Well, I think that's as good a place as any to wrap things up. Thanks so much for joining us, Lucy. Uh, this has been a fantastic way to start our second season. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Next week, Jamie Rebinall joins us to discuss Madame Dewberry. 
Head over to www.ernstcast.com for links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes. How Would Lupage Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 